0: Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight, show, have a very special guests, two guests, their brothers, their names are Philip and Paul Collins. And they wrote a book a while back, which I listened to some of their interviews. That book that uh, they've talked a lot about in a lot of the interviews I listened to is titled The Ascendancy of the Scientific Dictatorship, an Examination of Epistemic Autocracy from the 19th to 21st Centuries." That was published in 2006. And we're going to talk about a new book that they wrote last year. November 2020 was when it was published. The title of that book is Invoking the Beyond, The Kantian Rift, Mythologized Menaces, and the Quest for the New Man. It's a very long, very supremely well-researched book. It's a thousand pages. I have not gotten through through the entire book. Good news is that they've already agreed to break their talk about their book into two parts. So we're going to do the first part tonight and then schedule the second part later so that gives them more time to kind of lay out uh, their research. Um, Philip D. Collins has acted as the editor for The Hidden Face of Terrorism. He's also written articles for Paranoia Magazine, MKZine, NewsWithViews.com, and BiPed, the official website of Darwinian Dissent and Conspiracy Archive. And then Paul David Collins is also an author of The Hidden Face of Terrorism. And he has received his associate in science degree from Clark State Community College and a major from Wright State University. He's worked as a professional journalist for four years. And he's written for many independent, smaller uh, community publications, such as The New Carlisle Sun, Tip City Herald, Beaver Creek News, Vandalia Drummer, Springboro Sun, and Fairborn Derrick. Daily Herald, just to name a few. So again, the authors are Philip and Paul Collins, and the book we're going to talk about tonight is Invoking the Beyond, The Kantian Rift, Mythologized Menaces, and the Quest for the New Man. So Philip and Paul, are you there?
1: Yes, we are. Hey, thanks uh, Mr. Ramsey. Yeah, thank you so much.
0: Well, yeah, thanks Thanks for agreeing to the interview. Uh, I re- listened to you guys. We talked in the pre-show about Visigoth. You've done interviews then. You also had your own show. Uh, some of those Interviews are still bouncing around. Can you talk about, I mean, the ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship is prescient. It's obviously what's going on in the kind of current uh, situation here in the US. Can you talk about that book and then what led you to write Invoking the Beyond?
1: Yeah, sure. Well, the, the ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship basically charts the course of the uh, development and history of uh, technocracy, which in classical political terms is the appellation assigned to a system of governance wherein technical and scientific experts rule by virtue of their specialized knowledge. Uh, These experts occupy lofty positions in economic and political institutions because they allegedly possess some vaguely defined gnosis or secret knowledge concerning the operations of the cosmos, the operations of the natural order. But the uh, contention that scientists should seize the reins of governance, that rests uh, upon uh, the uh, epistemological convictions of scientism, which is the belief that the investigational methods of the natural sciences can be applied to all fields of inquiry. Scientism holds that the natural sciences provide the only uh, legitimate hermeneutical keys for understanding the world and reality. In short, it's basically epistemological imperialism. It eschews epistemological pluralism, and basically holds aloft the uh, quantitative and empirical approach of the physical sciences as the only means by which we can understand the cosmos. And through the prism of an exclusively scientific outlook, all forms of knowledge that cannot be derived through those means Through the quantitative and empirical uh, Methods are unreliable At best or illusory at worst So philosophical, metaphysical And uh, religious claims Are automatically uh, Dismissed because they cannot Be scientifically apprehended So in sh- uh, short The physical sciences are basically Deemed the uh, sole path uh, To uh, truth Now the the One of the Major problems with uh, any uh, form of governance that is premised upon the uh, epistemological uh, convictions of scientism and uh, the uh, technocratic paradigm is the fact that the quantitative and empirical approaches of the physical science uh, do not uh, really dignify uh, humanity. it does v- nothing to ennoble it. In the words of B.F. Skinner, uh, it dehomunculizes man. it divests man of any sort of ennobling qualities, any sort of uh, uh, any sort of uh, dignity or intrinsic value. Um, in the scientifically regimented state, the citizen becomes little more than an amalgam, of behavioral repertoires whose every thought, feeling, and idea is basically the product of external stimuli. And From this scientific vantage point, the populace's motives can be calculated, they can be systematized, thereby allowing a, a few conditioners who are accountable to no moral master to develop economic and technological stimuli that can produce the desired patterns of mass behavior. Aldous Huxley described such a societal model as... A scientific dictatorship, which is an appellation that can be used in, uh, interchangeably with uh, technocracy, with uh, invoking the beyond, uh, which is the follow-up to the ascendancy of the scientific dictatorship. We wanted to uh, examine uh, the means by which the uh, power elite and uh, their, uh, you know, their technocratic theoreticians uh legitimize their hegemony and uh in, in the book the, the what we uh basically examine is uh the beyond which is a narrative device that they invoke uh in order to basically uh overwhelm national governments epistemologically and ontologically and this invocation precipitates the subsequent introduction of a deux ex machina in the form of a technocratic world state. And of course, such a global uh, managerial system would be advantage- an advantageous arrangement to only an elite few uh, who basically lay claim again to some vaguely defined sociopolitical gnosis that uh, qualifies them to lead humanity into a a glorious transfiguration, into the emergence of a new man. But uh, the beyond, uh, it basically resulted from what we dub the Kantian Rift, which is uh, a neologism that we assign to the epistemological disjunction between phenomena, or that is to say, appearances, and noumenon, that is to say, the thing in itself. And this bifurcation was imposed upon epistemology by the Enlightenment theoretician Immanuel Kant. Um, Immanuel Kant, he lived from (coughs) 1724 to 1804, and he was one of the most uh, influential uh, theoreticians of the Enlightenment, and he set into motion this entire epistemological revolution. in Kantian terms, and the, uh, this is where it becomes a little bit—it uh, becomes a little bit confusing. But you know, clarity of definitions is very important in philosophical right. conversations. So, uh, um, in Kantian terms, when we uh, talk about phenomenon, um, phenomena within the context of Kantian epistemology are objects that are discerned through sense perception, which supposedly structures ex- uh, external reality in this manner that's potentially disproportionate with reality. It's it's potentially illusory, and thus phenomena just really amounts to nothing more than mere appearances, and man can only infer so much from these observable occurrences. He must, however, maintain this overall agnosticism, epistemic incertitude concerning the true nature of those objects portraying uh, that are portrayed by phenomena. So the external world really becomes a mirage. It, it, it Phenomena are just nothing more than, in platonic terms, the shadows dancing upon the caves of the wall. They're just right. vague representations of the actual objects. In contradistinction, noumenon refers to objects that must be discerned independent of uh, sense perception. And it's with uh, Kant's invocation of this term that all of a sudden we're confronted with a considerable amount of terminological inexactitude because Numenon, that term in the pre-Kantian world of ancient philosophy, actually occupied the transcendent order and was typically discerned through intuitive uh, reasoning. For example, Platonic ideas and forms, they qualify as Numenon. Uh, Proclus, who was the placa- uh, Platonic realist, uh, he uh, regarded the forms as uh, thoughts within the mind of God. That was considered Numenon. But Kant redefined noumenon as the sich, or in the original German, the thing in itself, objects as they actually exist, apart from uh, man's potentially deceptive faculties of empirical observation. Now, uh, uh, on Kant, humanity's perception of the empirical world is restricted to untrustworthy uh, representations. So, basically, gone is the beautiful... <laughs> the uh, beautiful creation of the uh, biblical Genesis account that God deemed good, Um, gone is the harmonious cosmos of ancient Greek philosophy. All that remains is this alien world of appearances. Man can have no experience apart from that which is already framed for him and structured for him by the spatio-temporal matrix. So we basically become lost cartographers who sculpt these mental maps of reality that are woefully suboptimal, potentially disproportionate with the actual reality. And so we have this epistemological barrier that severs the adequation between the human mind and reality. And we call that epistemological barrier the Kantian rift. And obviously, with with such an epistemology holding sway, the world... Becomes a disteleological world. It becomes a meaningless, purposeless world because if you can have no knowledge of it, if you, if it's perennially imperceptible, uh, then it, 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 then there, there's nothing, there's no ontological truth we can grasp about it. So it becomes absurd. It becomes. Uh, again, uh, a meaningless, purposeless, disteleological cosmos. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it echoes the cosmological sentiments of an ancient heresy that was ubiquitous in Jerusalem after the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Many uh, scholars argue that that this uh, heresy probably originated uh, prior to the temple's uh, destruction, but its influence was almost certainly strengthened by the pervasive despair that we saw uh, engendered and endemic to uh, that catastrophic event, endemic to the fall of the temple, right. and, In 70 AD. Uh, right? Yes, and uh, because after all, if the, 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 the temples fall, uh, uh, according to Jewish apocalypticism, that that basically intimated the ostensible. Uh, failure of Jewish uh, prophecy. Jewish apocalypticism basically uh, came apart, was atomized by that. And it it just, it appeared to them as the nullification of God's covenant with his chosen people. So if God's promises no longer held sway, then there was good reason to doubt uh, his involvement with the created order. So of course, a world that's ontically divorced from its creator invariably succumbs to cosmological pessimism. And such cosmological pessimism was endemic to Gnosticism, which challenged the early Christian church and Gnosticism, basically uh, to to give a relatively truncated, uh, presentation concerning, uh, Gnosticism, because I don't want to, you know, become too tangential, uh, Gnosticism basically ontologized corruption. It ontologized evil. It assigned evil a positive ontological status. And in so doing, it arrived at this cosmological pessimism, uh, wherein the world, the physical world, was regarded as nothing more than a deceptive simulacrum, uh, ontologically deficient, uh, created by... A, uh, a, 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 basically an incompetent and uh, grossly misled uh, god who was a lower emanation of Sophia, who represented uh, wisdom, and so uh, we we see Gnosticism uh, basically uh, making its uh, making its way into the modern era through Immanuel Kant. He basically reiterates. Uh, the uh gnostic epistemology and the reason being is because the uh 18th uh century enlightenment was for all practical purposes a gnostic revival you have this right. uh you know you have these elements of gnosticism um being espoused by various uh various uh enlightenment theoreticians right, but
0: sorry to interrupt but i think if i remember correctly one of the one of the epistles or one of the paul's things was addressing gnostic ideas which believes that man's knowledge is the way to salvation right and it's man-centered instead of god providing salvation i think you make that point at the intro to your book right there's a distinction so it's the tree of knowledge not the tree of knowledge of good and evil and you see that theme all the way through kant enlightenment to the occultists of the present day, who still say, it's even Leary, it's about the tree of knowledge. Well, but he's, you know, That's a very important distinction between yeah. the tree it, of it, knowledge and the tree of knowledge of good news.
1: You know, uh, uh, modern-day occultists, like you say, have acted as a transmission belt, but um, Gnosticism is so pervasive that you even find it in geopolitical circles. You find it in foreign policy circles. If you look at two of the major conduits for the uh, oligarchs today, the neoliberals and the neoconservatives, both the both of those conduits, both of those elite conduits, that, um, uh, have um, very significant uh, gnostic elements in
0: in what they believe. You know, or if you, you want to uh, even go that far, look at big tech. Look at some of these right. people who are tech guys. They are, in a way, <laughs> gnostics. They right. are using their knowledge to create the world that they think is better, not something not. Uh, a uh, sensible cosmos as laid out by a benevolent God, but the opposite of that.
1: Right, absolutely. Uh, with, with Gnosticism, um, um, the newer Gnosticism uh, of modernity, um, that where it distinguishes itself from the older Gnosticism, the older Gnosticism um, just embraced this explicit cosmological pessimism, this explicit loathing for uh, the material world, The newer Gnosticism um, basically regards the world more so as something like a dilapidated habitation in need of renovation. And that renovation is to be effected by uh, the, uh, you know, the theoretician who uh, supposedly can lay claim to a gnosis, to a secret knowledge that would uh, basically allow them to re-sculpt history uh, or resculpt the world uh, it, it, uh, according to the right, to and you
0: also kind of use the terms gnosis and occultist, kind of uh, overlapping, right? Like it's almost like a, there's secret occult knowledge, right? Right, and uh, and occultism—that's basically what the word occultism
1: means—is is secret, and it, it's a yeah, a secret body of of, of uh, knowledge. But um, you you know, you see you it, with the modern uh, gnostics, what they basically do is they transpose the eschaton, that is the end of days, into the Emanid sphere. And um, you, you have you have this uh, on this succession of theoreticians that would affect that transposition of the eschaton, beginning with uh, Joachim of Fior, uh, then on to uh, Jacob Boehm, from uh, Jacob Boehm on to uh, Hegel, and from Hegel, of course, to Karl Marx. um and, and then, as uh, Paul mentioned earlier, to the uh, neoliberals and the uh, neoconservatives, um, all of whom are uh, seeking to, in the words of Eric Vogelin, emanatize the eschaton, to bring about heaven on earth, which would be at variance with uh with the gnosticism of uh, uh the ancient world because gnosticism of the ancient world sought uh to escape the world these uh newer gnostics now seek to change it to renovate it and they regard the world as being a malleable uh just a malleable ball of clay that is basically susceptible to their enlightened uh their the enlightened uh brushstrokes of, uh you know their their utopian schematics but at any rate um, um so it's with that we have we have uh with that with this world that has been uh basically rendered <clears throat> imperceptible and completely and totally uh completely and totally unknowable um we have the emergence of these modern myth makers these new myth makers who basically, uh, basically invoke the beyond. They invoke this uh force, a deific force that has supplanted uh, uh the god of uh Christianity, of Orthodox Christianity, and has uh basically uh been uh invoked in several different forms. Um we we uh, study the Beyond, I believe, in four iterations. We study it as the uh, Wrathful Earth Goddess, which of course is an invocation used uh, with the uh, radical environmentalist movement, which of course is advantageous to the uh, power elite because um, they basically advance uh, uh, systems of technological apartheid and population control. Um, we examine it as a uh, the, uh, the uh, technological singularity, which of course is the techno-rapture, uh, part of the eschatology of the transhumanists, who again, yeah, as you said, qualify as a modern form of Gnosticism. Uh, we examine it as the superweapon, which um, the superweapon, of course, it began off uh, relatively nebulous. It had assumed various forms as, uh, you know, beam weapons, as uh, the uh, you know, as as poisonous gases, uh, various forms of mechanized warfare, and then uh, finally as the atom bomb, which interestingly enough was a neologism coined by H.G. Uh, Wells, who frequented a great many of these elitist circles and uh, did kind of. Uh, Kind of uh, act as an expositor of much of their of much of their theories of much of their doctrines, sometimes in a fi- in a fictional form. And um, it was it was in the book, uh, for instance, uh, the world set free that uh, we see we foresee the appearance of the uh, neologism of the atom bomb. And then, lastly, we and the most fantastical form. Uh, uh, that we see the beyond being invoked as are
0: extraterrestrial gods. Right. And it's right there in your cover. So you have this very kind of modern view of, yeah, this myth of these beings and it kind of overlaps too with some of these science fiction writers too, right? Like Arthur C. Clarke, uh, right. they're bolstering all of these kind of ideas. Right. Right. Well, extraterrestrials and
1: what we, 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 you know, begin off with in, the, in our examination of the uh, extraterrestrial gods, the beyond invoked as the extraterrestrial gods, gods. They're often portrayed by the science fiction writers as ethereal and spiritually advanced beings, as is evidenced by the tacitly angelic presentation of interplanetary visitors and in Steven Spielberg's Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But this angelic motif actually originated with another Enlightenment theoretician by the name of Jacob Belivi, who was an Enlightenment-era pamphleteer. He was a a printer, and he promulgated this odd neo-gnostic narrative between 1730 and 1750. And this narrative can be found in works such as The Layman's uh, Vindication of the Christian Religion and The Oration, Spoke at Joyner's Hall, wherein Alevi transposes the eschaton of heaven and hell into the vacuum separating celestial bodies, namely space. But Alevi ec- echoes the uh, cosmological pessimism of his ancient Gnostic antecedents, claiming that the earth is, quote unquote, hell, that is to say, the place inferior to heaven. And Alevi expresses uh, distinctly dysteleological contention uh, that the uh, earth is bereft of any uh, purpose, uh, that it has no meaning, no purpose, it serves no function. He says no order of higher beings or no order of beings was created to people it. So, in other words, it just it just simply is. And this demonic portrayal of the world was clearly derivative of ancient Gnostic cosmology, which again resulted from the Gnostics' assignment. Of positive ontological status to evil, um, but um, at any rate, um, this is the dominant hermeneutic according to which the UFO phenomena is understood. You will see it throughout several works of fiction. Arthur C. Clarke, in particular, uh, with 2001: A Space Odyssey, also especially. <laughs> especially prevalent in uh, Childhood's End, which is basically Gnostic cosmology distilled as a work of uh, science fiction. Um, you see it uh, uh, espoused uh, in uh, uh, Steven uh, Spielsberg's uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. But um, it's also the hermeneutic that uh, is advanced by the intelligence community. And the, the intelligence community is in large measure Responsible for the perpetuation of this extraterrestrial myth, which uh, is advantageous again to the power elite, because the uh, extraterrestrial gods basically overwhelm national governments ontologically and epistemologically. It leaves parliaments, representative forms of governments, the uh, all uh, republics with no way of addressing. Uh, now the broader uh, a broader cosmic community, and so you have a crisis of either diplomacy or a crisis of uh, a crisis of military intervention. The crisis of diplomacy um, is uh, where you, no one nation state can speak for Earth, uh, as uh, as uh, Stanton Friedman put it. No, who who speaks for Earth? Argentina, and so. Implicit in that aphorism is the contention that, that a global, uh, super state, uh, a technocratic super state, is the only, uh, governmental structure that would uh, be, uh, efficient enough to uh, address this broader cosmic community that we've just now become a member of. And then the, uh, military, the military dilemma is if those, uh, if those aliens happen to be of a demonic variety. Again, we have the angelic motif and the, the aliens can be either angelic or demonic or you know fallen angels. Um, and they, they wish to exterminate us, they wish to carry out a campaign of genocide, then the only means by which the, such a threat can be addressed is by amalgamating all nation states into a uh, global, uh, technocratic system, uh, so that uh, all of our combined forces might uh, might stop the uh, alien invasion. And th- those are the two narrative paradigms that are advanced uh, by the para elite um, as uh, rationales uh, for for their the perpetuation of their hegemony, for the instantiation of the form of uh, global governance that they seek. To, uh that they seek to uh see enshrined. but uh, throughout the uh, throughout that, that mm-hmm. chapter of the book we we document several instances of uh several instances of uh, uh intelligence community intelligent uh various uh uh personas that uh, people the intelligence community and the intelligence milias, their involvement in the perpetuation of this alien myth.
0: Right. And that's like what Blue Book. Can you can you go deeper into that? What has the intelligence agents done? I mean, if you look at some of the culture and even the cover of your book, so many of these alien invasions and stuff, they involve the the heads of nation states. The White House gets blown up or, uh, you know, all these. It's almost like there's the New World Order. Uh, myth, or or the furtherance of those concepts through representations through Hollywood that people are seeing, where the narrative may not be as overt as they think. But what else has the intelligence agencies been involved in in perpetuating this uh, alien myth? Well, um, if you look at the, if, if you look at the UFO uh,
1: at, at the UFO phenomenon as we do as a as a mostly terrestrial based uh, uh, deception. Uh, we do see some preternatural elements to it, but but you know um, but that's that that's in 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 kind of a kind of uh, synergistically working along with what is essentially a terrestrial based uh, deception. One thing you always recognize is that the UFO deception campaign is characterized by function stacking and um, function stacking is a term that appears to have been uh, coined by the permaculture community, but it has application when we look at things like UFOs. Um, and function stacking, it's, it's defined as an element in an operation that serves more than one function. It serves multiple functions. And UFOs do just that. Um, they serve multiple functions. And, and, and so there were three functions that we looked into uh, num- the first one was that they concealed the test of experimental aircraft and other covert technologies. Most people, you know, are familiar with that, that function. Right. Um, the, sec- the second function is that they help conceal criminal intelligence operations such as drug trafficking, gun running, sexual entrapment and blackmail rings, eugenics campaigns, reg- regime change, etc. You know, um, Whenever these, whenever these intelligence crimes start to come out, it's the the um, the the darker side of the intelligence community will start to intermingle into those those um, into those revelations. They'll start to intermingle uh, UFO disinformation and thus lead the researcher down an evidentiary cul-de-sac, you know, because. He starts off on a, he st- the, the researcher starts off on a really good trajectory, starts off on a really good course, and then they get pulled, you know, they get uh, pulled aside or pulled to one way or the other uh, uh, by, by disinformation, by, you know, this UFO disinformation. But the third and the most significant, in our opinion, is that uh, of the functions is that uh, served by the UFOs. Is that they advance a social engineering um, agenda? They they're used to bring about the radical reconfiguration of civilization, and we believe, and we 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 state this in the book that most, if not all, UFO deceptions are used by you know the darker elements of the intelligence community. Because I don't want uh, to mislead the audience or. May have the audience, um, you know, labor under the uh, the belief that the intelli- entire intelligence community is is evil. Or it, no, that's not, you know, there there are some very good people working within the intelligence community. Good people working within a bad system, um, you know. And then there's the criminalist, uh, criminalized element. But you know, um, the the uh, this criminal these criminal intelligence circles. Uh, use UFO deception use almost all UFO uh, deceptions to serve that third function um, some of the some of the manufactured UFO uh, de- uh, UFO incidents may have been concocted to serve one of the first two functions um, or both but they eventually go on to be employed to condition humanity to make a radical, Break from the past. So, social engineering involving UFOs—it um, appears to have become extremely significant in the in late 1940. It may have very well taken place in years prior, but the final years of the 40s seem to be when it really came to a head. When it really became the most prominent. At that time, <clears throat> the prior incarnation of the Beyond, the Super weapon Philip brought up earlier appears to have begun to act as a kind of midwife for the UFO manifestation of the beyond and in the book we support this contention with a passage found in the appendix to a uh, to a 1949 report released by project sign and any UFO buffs out there already know about project sign but it was it was uh, what project sign was it was a uh, an official on the subject of UFOs, that was conducted by the United States um, Air Force, and in the, the, the project science report, there was a letter from Dr. James Lip. Uh, Lip was an aeronautical uh, engineer and a department head at the RAND Corporation, which was a it, was an, um, it still is, it's still around. It's an American nonprofit uh, global policy think tank. Uh, the Rand Corporation was the epicenter for a lot of radical ideas regarding nuclear exchange and nuclear war. Um, for instance, in 1963, the Rand Corporation produced a report that would serve as the foundation for Secretary of Defense Robert McNamara's policy of mutually assured, assured destruction, MAD. And MAD would go on to become a kind of national security centerpiece during the uh, during the Cold War, it, it basically held that, in the event of a nuclear exchange, both the aggressor and the defender are destroyed, and and so you know uh, because uh, both hold within their means the nuclear capabilities of destroying both uh, both adversaries hold the means and the capability to destroy one another um, in in a nuclear exchange. So that, that is that, that acts as the ultimate deterrent. Yeah. MAD is widely considered to be the theory of deterrence put into practice. But like many other Cold War policies, MAD was, taught, was characterized by uh, by function stacking. So while it did, in fact, uh, discourage both major superpowers from entertaining the, the notion of, of a nuclear exchange, it also allowed the global oligarchical establishment, uh, the world's power elite, to basically universally impose what we term nuclear anxiety. Um, Nuclear anxiety is this kind of pervasive, obsessive fear of nuclear extinction. And and once the global oligarchical establishment induced this nuclear kind of fever dream, an an extended period of nuclear extortion took place. And sometimes nuclear extortion could even be found in a in 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 different cultural artifacts um whether whether you, you talk about um you're talking about mad max or the movie the the day after which we go into right. extensively it, it really came that 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 nuclear extortion really came to permeate the cultural landscape and all but nuclear extortion you know all the movies and and, and pop popular uh, portrayals of it all that aside it is very much real nuclear extortion is very much real and it was deployed to advance uh this agenda that was that um you know um that to that, that um basically to blackmail people blackmail the population
0: right it was social engineering right
1: What's that, sir?
0: It was a, find a kind of social engineering. Yeah. It was used to keep people in line. The enemy's over there. We could get nuked. We have to pay for this. You guys have to keep you know, doing this and uh, don't challenge the social order or else we're all going to get incinerated. Right.
1: And and to basically accept that, you know, a, 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 a one-world government, a technocratic one-world government as the only – viable alternative to uh, to nuclear extinction. And um, so, you know, we had this connection of the rant of Rand to Project Sign. And this indicates that to us, and, and we point this out in the book, that the nuclear fetishist, that cultural historian H. Um, Bruce Franklin calls the cult of the superweapon were endeavoring to breathe life into a new incarnation of the Beyond, and um, Lips' letter, his his in the in the appendix to the Project Sign report, demonstrates he was clearly a skeptic regarding UFOs. He he pointed out that the UFO reports in nineteen forty seven and nineteen forty eight they really weren't that impressive. If you were looking for evidence of interplanetary travel, they really didn't. Um, he then, however, goes on in that letter to provide the foundation for the exploitation of the belief in interplanetary travelers. The foundation is found in one of the theories he advances in that letter. Uh, Lip contended that there might be a causal relationship between atomic bomb tests and the appearance of UFOs. He he asserted that if real, interplanetary travelers came uh, f- uh, to our solar system, and they were drawn to Earth by the detonation of nuclear devices. And uh, Lip's theory included Martian telescopes visually detecting an A-bomb explosion at Almodordo and Hiroshima. Now, Lip didn't seem to describe the theory. As a matter of fact, he points out many of its de- deficiencies uh, in, in the very same letter that he posits this theory. Put quite simply, um, Lip believed Martians would find observing Earth to be rather boring. You know, he, uh, he, he thought it would be a mundane exercise to spend long periods of time just watching this printed planet. All of that aside, however, Lip had either intentionally or unintentionally, we, we can't determine which, uh, contributed to a narrative that would be used to manipulate the UFO community for years and years to come. It was it was also uh, used to deceive the public, generally speaking. Social engineers within um, what has been termed the deep state introduced to the public imagination the notion that interplanetary travelers had detected our nuclear activities and were now visiting Earth with both benign and sinister intentions, depending on which extraterrestrial uh, race uh, you were uh, you were discussing, and the hands of these social engineers can be detected almost immediately following project sign, as the UFO contactee phenomenon began to, to emerge. Nuclear anxiety was uh, was a very common uh, thematic thread, running through the accounts of of, of contactees. Uh, according to the contactees of the fifties, the aliens. Had come to warn us uh, that we needed to cease our nuclear test, um, the atomic test. The aliens were leaking radiation. was having an adverse effect on our planet, specifically, but but the uh, the the solar system, generally speaking, it was it was disrupting the solar system's delicate balance. And as far as we're concerned, the contactees' message. Held too much in common with Lips' theory to be accidental. Um, well, yeah, no, it's incredible.
0: It's still going on to this day, even all the to the Stars Academy and all that stuff. There's all kinds oh. of intel figures around there. So this is not something that tra, tra, is in declination or descent. It's still going on. There's still people manipulating this myth. And I also yeah. think one element is another thing is that the if there are extraterrestrials, then the biblical Worldview is diminished, right? So right. there's other entities, and the idea of man being in between heaven and hell—all those things are, uh, you know, eroded.
1: It, it, it undermines it considerably. Um, it's a leap of logic, but it's still, it's still, um, it, it, it still has traction with people today. This notion that because this race you know, alleged grace traversed has traversed a sea of stars and come from far away, you know, another solar system all the way to here, they must also have superior spiritual knowledge. And they they might possess yeah, it's it's a it's a gnosis, but it's a gnosis they possess just by virtue of geography and nothing more. For some reason, because they're from another world that automatically must mean that they're in, in possession of spiritual insights that we don't possess, uh, you know, as human beings. Um, and it, basically, you, you see with, with, uh, with again, with, with this, you know, new uh, interpretation of space, this, uh, again, the transposition of the eschaton, the space now, the, the that vacuum so, uh, that separates celestial bodies now becomes essentially heaven. And uh, those beings that uh, traverse the expanse therein are are now, you know, just uh, spiritually enlightened. And in some cases, in the case of of directed panspermia, the the theories of directed panspermia, it's believed that they were, in fact, uh, uh, collectively God, that they had uh, created uh, humanity.
0: Yeah, it's the same theme in the aliens series. And what was the movie where the guy comes to Earth and he lands in DC and warns? Oh, yes, the
1: the the uh the uh Dave the, the Earth
0: stood still. So There you go. The same theme, this kind of enlightened being who right. has tremendous power.
1: Right. Well basically Klaatu, the 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 uh central alien character of that uh, particular story is uh nothing more than a a, a A sort of exotheological Christ, Um, um, and as a matter of fact, one of the names that the name that he assumes as a human being is Carpenter, which of course is uh, a rather conspicuous allusion to Jesus the Carpenter. I I know, and we don't necessarily go into this in the book, and we are going to expand upon what we say in chapter seven of the book about UFOs in either an article or a follow-up, you know, volume. Um, uh, the the um, the director of that film, uh, Daryl Zanuck, he was part of the National Committee for for Free Europe, which was a front a front for the Central Intelligence uh, Agency. I remember like that. I remember yeah. that? Yeah, and he he had he had worked as a writer. He had wrote more than forty scripts uh, during the 1920s for Warner Brothers. And then moved on to head of head of production there, and in 1933 he uh, left Warner Brothers after he had studied. He had uh, he and his he and Jack Warner had a had a dispute over his salary, but he then partnered with Joseph Schrank uh, and uh, started 20 first uh, 20th Century Fox, and he and Shrank would. Uh, Transfer the production company into. They would transform that production company into a a very very powerful force to be reckoned with within the movie, uh, the movie, the motion picture industry. Uh, Especially in 1935, when they uh, when they bought uh, Fox Studios, which had uh, gone bankrupt, and uh, merged it with 20th Century. Uh, to form uh, 20th Century Fox uh, Film Corporations. But Zanuck became much more than just a major film producer. When America entered World War II in 1941, Zanuck gained an intelligence background because he was commissioned as a colonel in Army Signals Intelligence Corps. And he placed his film company at the disposal of the United States government. And 20th Century Fox began just turning out films that were made with the supervision of the, um, of the Office of War Information, OWI, which is a government agency engaged in large, very large-scale information propaganda. And in Zanuck's mind, filmmaking and, and propagandizing really became one and the same thing. He, he merged the two whether intentionally or unintentionally. Motion picture art and information warfare and persuasion became one and the same in Xanax Xanax psychology. So it goes
0: all the way back, right from the inceptions of the film industry, all that stuff, war propaganda, social engineering, really started all the way back then, 70 years ago.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, you look at the, the production of The Day the Earth Stood Still, and, you know, you read the various... Uh, accounts of, of, of that production. And you find out that, uh, Zanuck, he wanted a very almost documentary, very gritty, very realistic style to it. He, he, he wanted the audience to buy that. This was an actual, uh, um, uh, visitation. Does this was an actual, you know, uh, um uh um, ufo event that this that that the the, the aliens were real he, he wanted the audience to feel like they were viewing something that was was very that was that was very real uh, of particular importance to xanax was the now famous speech when Klattu lands lance's spacecraft in the nation's capital and he delivers his message to the americans and the rest of humanity um when he, while discussing this scene with the movie's producer Julian uh, Blaustein uh, screen, and the movie's uh, screenwriter, which I believe was Edmund North, um, Zanuck directed them to quote treat it as realistically as you possibly can. Unquote. You know, so once again, he wanted this documentary style to to this UFO land scene. Uh, he even told uh, North and Blaustein the following quote: "You should suddenly hear radio programs being interrupted with startling flash announcements from Washington, New York, Los Angeles, et, et cetera. The whole nation is listening in." Unquote. Um, so, so you know, he wanted people to buy that um, that uh, a UFO visitation, that alien visitation of Earth was. Was was a very real possibility.
0: Yeah, imminent. Like it could happen any time, right?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Guys,
0: guys, I got. I hate to interrupt, but I'm. Oh, I got another God. interview in five minutes, and we haven't really even gotten into the kind of quest for the yeah. new man, Darwin, Marx. There's a lot of other themes that uh, are involved in this book. Where is the best place for people to get Invoking the Beyond?
1: Uh, the best place they can get it is off iUniverse. That's the uh, publisher. Uh, iUniverse.com, just go there, enter invoking the beyond into the search engine. The, for the print copy, uh, the price is a wee bit exorbitant. Again, we didn't set the price. It was actually set by the publisher, I'm assuming, to cover printing costs. So if uh, if that's a, a bit too much for you, you can also check out the uh,
0: electronic version, which is only $2.99. And where is the best – do you guys have a website or social media people want to reach out to you? Uh, Heretofore
1: hereto for right now, we have, we have a platform on www.conspiracyarchive.com, which is maintained by Terry Melanson. But in the next month or so, we will be launching our own website. So uh, right now, the best place, though, to go for most of our work is at Conspiracy Archive. That will soon change
0: conspiracyarchive.com. You're going to have a new website up. I'll put a conspiracy archive in the show notes, and I'll I'll set up another time where you can come back and kind of continue talking about this very detailed, very well-researched book, Invoking the Beyond. But thank you so much for your time, Paul and Philip D. Collins. Thank you so much. Thank Thank you. Keep in touch. All right, stay there.
1: Stay there.